50 years ago, in his classic 1962 book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas S. Kuhn defined a paradigm as a person's vision of reality through which that person perceives and interacts with the world. With this in mind, a paradigm shift occurs when a person or a society undergoes a fundamental change in thinking leading to a fundamental change in behavior. Now, while the last 40 years has brought with it some incredible paradigm shifts, some incredible changes to the way that Americans live our lives, air travel becoming the norm, high-speed internet, home computers, wireless cell phones, this list could go on and on. It's been an, incre an incredible season of technology and the shifts that have occurred in that direction. But one of the most incredible shifts that's taken place in the last 40 years might not be something that you would have picked out of a list. It's actually been the way that people consume water. You might not know that. The way people consume water presents one of the most drastic paradigm shifts of the last 40 years. It's amazing to think, but bottled water, the industry, it was non-existent 30, 40 years ago. If a person wanted a nice glass of ice water, the kitchen tap provided such a service at virtually no cost. For years, paying for water that was freely available seemed to be an incredulous proposition. I can remember when the you know, bottles of water were being sold in the gas station thinking, that's crazy. Like why in the world would I pay for something, pay a dollar for something that I can get for free at home? It comes out of this magical thing called a spout. I get it, it's, it's, it's awesome. And yet, bottled water has become, even in the last 15 years, big business. The average annual number of plastic bottles used per person per year, you know what it is? It's 167. That's a lot. The annual spending on bottled water in the United States annually, $11.8 billion. The total number of bottles of water sold annually in, in the United States, 30 billion. The total number of cases of water sold in the US annually, 2.6 billion. And you know, what makes this interesting is that this paradigm shift in how we consume water, it happened rapidly. In 1999, the average American consumed 16.2 gallons of bottled water per year. In 2003, that number rose to 21.6 gallons. In 2007, it grew to 29 gallons. In 2013, the average American drank 32 gallons of bottled water per year. That doubles totals from 1999. And note, this particular paradigm shift, it took place amidst growing research in a pretty active media campaign showing how bad plastic bottles were for the environment. We have something for free, the alternative damages the environment, and we don't even care, we go for it. Now what makes this shift all the more incredible is that clean water is still one of the cheapest commodities for most Americans. Consider this, if you drank a $1 bottle of water today after church. But then you took that bottle, that plastic empty bottle home 
and you continued to use it by refilling that bottle every day with tap water, it would take you three years to spend $1 on tap water refilling the bottle you paid $1 for. Even the cheapest bottle of water, according to research, is 2,000 times more expensive than the water that you can draw out of the tap. It's astounding. But in America, we spend $21 billion a year on bottled water when we spend $29 billion maintaining our entire water system. That's pipes, treatment plants, and pumps. This means we only spend 18% fewer dollars on crushable plastic bottles as we do our most fundamental water infrastructure. And if this shift wasn't all the more perplexing, according to a 2005-2020 investigation by John Stossel, there are no, zero, zilch, nada, no provable health benefits to bottled water over tap water. As a matter of fact, tap water is tested more often and held to higher safety standards than bottled water. You probably didn't know that. According to a study ran in the New York Times, uh, citing the Government Accountability Office, they record that neither the public nor federal regulators know nearly enough about where bottled water comes from and what safeguards are in place to ensure its safety. Bottled water is as, is as regulated as an energy drink. Bottled water, it's a paradigm shift. And it's one based completely on a marketing scam. Did you know in the U.S. more than 40% of bottled water is actually nothing more than repossessed tap water? PepsiCo, Aquafina, Coca-Cola, Dazian, are two, Dasani, are two of the most worst offenders. One of Aquafina's uh, water resources is the Detroit River. Did you know that? It's the Detroit River. It's not even a natural spring. It's a river in Detroit. You want to drink water out of that? I wouldn't go with Aquafina. Coca-Cola was recently forced to admit that they filter local municipal water, which is tap water, but they refuse, even today, to disclose how they filter it. It's supposedly pure, but there's no evidence that it's pure. Isn't it ironic that this 2020 investigation by John Stossel proved that when using a blind taste test, more people actually prefer the taste of tap water than they do over the bottle variety? Paradigm shifts. Paradigm shift. It's not going from Pepsi to Coke. Why you do that, I have no idea. But a paradigm shift occurs when for years and years and years and years and years, we consume water one way, and now we've shifted to the bottle variety. It's incredible. But understand that paradigm shifts take place economically, but also in the spiritual realm. As a matter of fact, church history will reveal, if you study it thoroughly, that Christianity itself has gone through five such shifts. In Acts 10, Christianity, as we've been looking at, shifted away from Jewish sectarianism when it opened its doors to Gentile Hellenists. Then in the 4th and 5th century, Christianity experienced another shift 
when it moved from Orthodox traditionalism to Roman Catholic authoritarianism. And yet again, another shift occurred in the 16th century when Luther challenged this Catholic norm by ushering in the Reformation. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Christianity shifted again, still, from Protestant fundamentalism to a liberal theology based on modernism. Even today, some people have argued that Christianity is experiencing another shift as it moves from modernism to postmodernism. For example, it's undeniable that Christianity, some within Christianity, some Christian thinkers are reevaluating positions. Absolute truth versus relativism. Creation versus evolution. Inerrancy versus progressive revelation. Women clergy amidst gender roles, homosexuality, the list could go on and on. We might be looking at another shift. Even individuals, even you, experience paradigm shifts when it comes to our own faith. Kids reach a point where they reach an age where they begin to question the faith of their parents. Is this gonna be mine or is it theirs? Will I take ownership or not? Millennials struggle trying to reconcile their Christian beliefs, those that they were taught and raised with, with the changing culture around them. At some point, each of us have or are trying to decide what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Paradigm shifts. Understand, paradigm shifts aren't always for the best. While the Gospels leap into Gentile communities, and Luther boldly nailing his 95 thesis on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg proved to be blessed shifts in the trajectory of Christianity. One can hardly say that Constantine merging the church and the state with the Edict of Milan proved to be beneficial. Shifts happen, but they're not always good. Though we spend billions of dollars and bottled water are we really healthier or better for it? The case can be, can be made no. And this is what makes the events of Acts 10 and 11 so helpful. In watching how Peter handled a clear, obvious, radical paradigm shift, we can learn how to ensure what's taking place in the church corporately or in each of us individually is genuinely a work of God and not some type of scam. We left things off, Acts 10. We'll start with verse 24. So the following day, they entered Caesarea. Peter is traveling with two servants, a soldier sent from Cornelius. He's in Joppa. They come get him. They stay the night. They make their way back. As they entered Caesarea, Cornelius, we're told, was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends, you sense the incredible faith of Cornelius. An angel appears to him, tells him to send for a man named Peter staying at the house of a man named Simon in Joppa. And not only is, he, is his heart filled with expectation and he was obedient to send men as the angel had instructed, but there's an anticipation. He's excited. He's waiting. Not only is he waiting, but he's gathered all of his family, all of his friends. He believes that there is a guy named Peter, that there was a house in Joppa owned by Simon, that all of this was God's instructions. And thus the man that was coming held the keys to life. He's excited. And we're told that as Peter was coming in, 
imagine. I'm really glad that that really was an angel, that it wasn't a stale burrito I ate the night before. I'm really glad, uh, since I've gathered all of my friends here, that this Peter guy really exists, and he comes in, Cornelius runs, he meets him. He falls at his feet. We're told that he worships Peter. <laughs> you know, there was probably a, a moment where Peter's thinking, it's about time. It's about time someone saw my greatness. It's about some time someone really recognized that I'm a, I'm a big deal. And yet we see that Peter, he has none of that. He lifts him up. He says, stand up. I myself am also but a man. And as Peter talked with him, he went in. He found many who had come together. I'm sure it was a shocking scene. And Peter said, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation, but... God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter enters the room, there's a crowd, and he begins by explaining his conundrum and the radical nature of what's happening. Obviously, after this initial awkward exchange with Cornelius, got to pick him up, they go in, Peter starts. He says, you know, it's unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go of one of another nation. Peter's making it clear. He's making sure they knew that the moment that he stepped into this house, a moment he had already done, he had already gone in, that in that moment he was crossing a line of demarcation, a point of no return. Not only would Peter in that instance have been ceremonially unclean according to Judaism, but he was keenly aware that his actions would create waves among the Jewish church. We're told, but God has shown me. It's unlawful. I shouldn't be doing this, but God has shown me. You know, Peter acknowledges that while he was raised in an environment where prejudice was the norm, and whereas his religion only served to substantiate that proposition, but God. Don't miss the power of those two words, but God. That God would be willing to intervene in the life of a human being. It's as though Peter's saying, the way I was raised presented this idea, and my religion substantiated that belief, and this and that, but, but God. God had a change of plan. God was moving in a different direction. You see, because of the vision that God had given him when he was up on the roof there in Joppa, Peter could now rest in two important realities. First, keeping company with Gentiles, <laughs> it had no standing, no impact on his standing before God. Peter had been cleansed by God, and what God had cleansed, no man can call common. Peter could eat and fellowship with Gentiles because it had no standing. The law didn't sanctify him. Jesus did. God did. It was a work no man could reverse. So Peter could engage in this interaction with Cornelius without fear that he himself would be unclean. But secondly, he realized that because of this, he possessed no moral right to judge anyone that God might be willing to cleanse. Verse 29, therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. 
I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear the things commanded you by God. <laughs> I like this exchange. So Peter shows up. He's like, I, I really shouldn't be here. This goes against everything I know, but God has kind of radically changed my outlook on things. So I'm here. Can you explain why I'm here? So Cornelius is like, yeah, let me explain why you're here. You're here because I was praying. And in the process of praying, God said I should send for you and that you would come and tell me some answers. But at this point, all you're bringing are questions. So what's the deal? And I can see them standing toe to toe. Why am I here? You tell me, why are you here? I've been praying, you're gonna come, you're supposed to say something. Well, Peter opened his mouth and he said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. I perceive. <laughs> I like it because what the word indicates is that Peter is kind of working this all out on the fly. That puzzle pieces are coming together and he's drawing lines and he's working it all out. And as this story is unfolding, he's not sure from one moment after the next what God's really doing, but he's perceiving like this vision coupled with the events of the last two days. They're beginning to form a, an understanding that what? That God shows no partiality. But according to Peter, instead does what? That God accepts those who fear him, and those who work righteousness regardless of nationality. Peter acknowledges that while Jesus was sent to the children of Israel, he is what? Jesus is Lord of all. You know, in the Greek, that word all, it means all. I like that. Verse 37, Peter continues that word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all things which he both did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. But him... God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, Whoever believes in him 
will receive remission of sins. Now, don't forget the driving factor behind this whole divine appointment, this meeting. Cornelius was a man who had found the gods of this world, the gods of Rome, the gods of the Greeks. He found the gods of of this earth to be a farce, empty. Beyond this, though he's accepted the true God of Israel, Cornelius has discovered that religion only leaves you empty. Religion only condemned him. It only kept him on the outside. What the world offered provided nothing. What religion offered left him grasping for something real and something tangible. He's searching. That's why he's praying the cry of his heart. Cried out to God to give him answers, to give him something real, something he could grasp, something tangible, genuine. Peter. Peter has been sent by God. Why? Because Peter, well, he had the fix for Cornelius' craving. The antidote for his disease. He had the answer to his question, the remedy for his plight. And thus he begins, where? With the gospel. Cornelius, this room full of Gentiles, he starts telling them about Jesus. This is probably an abridged version of of a longer sermon that that Peter gave. We find that that often occurs in the book of Acts, limited space, getting to the gist, kind of the cliff notes, so to speak. But he tells them about Jesus' life, about his ministry, about how how he healed people and he liberated people. He talked about Jesus' death, how the Jews had rejected him, his burial, his resurrection. He even mentions that this is a story that they, being Gentiles, would have known about as we're told it was proclaimed throughout all of Judea. But then note, Peter personalizes the gospel message. He tells these people who have gathered that he was a witness of all these things and was there to testify that Jesus was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Cornelius, he had prayed to God, asking, begging, craving, wanting God to tell him, what do I have to do for this life to make sense? What do I have to do to be satisfied? Every rock I've turned over has provided nothing. What is it for my life to have meaning, for my life to have purpose, for my heart to be satisfied. And God sends Peter, and the answer, well, we find. Some of the most powerful words ever uttered. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive remission of sins. It's a radical moment in his sermon. It's the crescendo, and let's break it down systematically. First, whoever, whoever, Peter understands what? That salvation has been extended, not just to the Jew, that salvation doesn't come just through Moses, but that we all are afforded, whoever, to all the nations, no matter your skin color, your social status, your economic outlook, your gender, it doesn't matter. That whoever, it's an incredible moment and the tale of redemption That whoever believes, this word believes, it tells us that it's 
not a matter of what you've done. That salvation isn't predicated upon you earning something or you deserving something, but instead, it's about God giving you something. The cry of a heart, the belief of the soul, it's not predicated upon what you do, but in Jesus. Now, don't miss the power of that. Whoever believes in Jesus, it's not a religious system that saves you. If religion could save you, then Judaism would have been fine. But religion only condemns you. It only shows you how far you have fallen from the glory of God. It's a measuring stick, Paul will say, that I compare myself to to find out how much of a wreck I am and how in desperate need of salvation I am. You know, the only way you can be saved is to first admit what? A fundamental need of salvation, to be saved. But it's not religion. It's not an ethic. It's not a code of behavior. Salvation comes in our belief in a person, a man, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, whoever believes in Jesus will receive. Receiving. That we receive salvation. That it's a gift not to be earned, but to be received. For what? For the remission of sins. This word remission is the Greek word aphis. It, it, it means to pardon or to forgive or, or to release from bondage. Understand, because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, it is by that, by belief in that work, that we can be released from the bondage of sin. But this only happens for one reason and one reason alone. The work that Jesus did on the cross on your behalf provides a remission or a pardon of sin because your sin was effectively satisfied for. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that is a reality no man can escape. The debt you owe is, is death. And yet Jesus, in his atoning sacrifice, his substitutionary sacrifice. Stepping in your place, Jesus took your sin upon himself and he paid for that sin. He satisfied the righteous requirements of that sin. He who was not sin became sin so that we might be saved. He paid the penalty that you owed. So if you believe in him and you accept, you receive that gift he provides, his propitiation, or his blood covering you. You've been justified. You've been cleansed. You've been forgiven, not by yourself, but by Jesus. You know, never forget grace. We talk about grace being a free gift, and that's true. Grace is free. Oh, grace is free for the recipient. But never forget that grace can only be free for the recipient after it's cost the giver a great deal. For grace, it's free, yes, free for you, but it costs Jesus everything. Like he spilt his blood to give you grace. I can't earn it, it's undeserved merit, absolutely, but that only happens because Jesus has given it, because he's paid the price for it. You know, it's also true that the greater the demonstration of grace, 
the greater the price for the person giving it. Parents know that, don't you? That when you're gonna extend grace to your kid, that the greater the grace, the greater the cost for you, right? Of your own hurt, of your own heartache. Like what it takes to give great grace is great suffering. There's a great price. Pastor Joe Foch, he made a powerful observation concerning Peter's presentation of Jesus as being both judge of the living and the dead. He said, it would be wise for many to consider that not believing in Jesus isn't enough to make him go away. You know, it's, it's a half truth, but it's a truth nonetheless that all beliefs, all roads, all religious systems, that every man will stand before God. All paths lead to God. However, when you stand before Jesus, he will either be presented as your savior or your judge. You will either hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant, indicating a relationship, enter into your rest, or you'll hear, depart from me. Because you were never good enough? No. Because I never knew you. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive, will receive. It's a guarantee. Will receive. If you believe, it's yours, the remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard this word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Those who came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues, magnifying God. You know, I love Peter. I really do. Like, Peter is, is one of my favorite characters in Scripture. Not like for as much of like the good things that he does as as much of like how much of an idiot he is. Like, I, I love it. You know, Peter, Peter is the only person I, I can figure out that has been interrupted by all three members of the Trinity. Like that's a unique standing in the place of scripture. If, if you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is being transfigured and Peter's like, awkward silence. Someone's got to say something. I'll do it. And he jumps out and he's like, you know what we should do here? We should set up three tabernacles, one for Jesus and one for Mo. And in the middle of him talking, we're told that God the Father interrupts him. Shut up, Peter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's another story where in, uh, in Matthew 17 that Peter is having this conversation with the Pharisees about taxes you know, why is it that your disciples don't pay taxes when others do pay taxes? And Peter's having this like theological showdown. And what happens? Jesus is like, time out, Peter. And he like jumps into the mix. Jesus interrupts him. You have God the Father interrupting him. You have Jesus interrupting them. And now Peter is, is grooving. I can see him. It's working, right? He's presenting this sermon. He's laying out the gospel. He's perceived. He's got it. He understands. He's rocking, rolling, ripping, and roaring. And then he gets interrupted because we're told, right? While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And then they start speaking in tongues, glorifying God. And Peter's like, well, I guess my Bible study's over. 
You know, one pastor I listened to observed that God interrupted Peter, Holy Spirit interrupted Peter, because he knew his sermon was not going to get any better the longer it went. I can sympathize with that. Sometimes, you know, you're going, and you're like, this ain't working, and you can see it. And you're like, well, maybe if I just change paces a little bit and try another strategy, it still doesn't work. You know, it's been said that if you can't strike oil after 45 minutes of drilling, you might as well give up. It's a good model for pastors. Don't overlook the significance of these words. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. You know, in the Old Testament, we're told that the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, it filled the tabernacle, Exodus 40, verse 34, and then later the temple, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. And in both instances, this unique moment of the glory of God coming and filling the tabernacle and the temple, it was God's way of, of publicly demonstrating his favor and both structures, holiness or consecration. By filling them, he's saying, I, I have favor in them and I'm going to set them apart. My presence does this. But now we know that God has a new temple, right? That, that God has a new dwelling place. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And while there are instances in the Old Testament of the Spirit coming upon Jewish people, Samson is a great instance, Solomon, David. This is the first time this has ever happened to a Gentile. Cornelius and those gathered, they were saved by God and filled with the Holy Spirit just as they were. That God showed his favor in pouring out the Spirit, and God demonstrated their holiness, their righteousness, their consecration. Non-observant Gentiles. They hadn't been circumcised. They weren't grafted into the family of Moses and Abraham. They were given God's favor, consecrated as holy, clearly, from God's perspective, his acceptance and his, righteous, his righteousness or a person's righteous standing did not require for a person to become an observant Jew. And this is radical. And note, they spoke with tongues, but what did they do in speaking in tongues? They glorified God. We've talked about this before. Tongues, not to be overly confusing, but it's a love language. It's, it enables the heart that can't find the word to tell God how much they love, the, how much they love and how, much, how grat, grateful they are. It enables the person, it unlocks, it gives a language for a release where you can worship God. And we're told that the men who had come with Peter, six men to be specific, that they're astonished. And I think that there's two reasons why they're astonished. One, well, this paradigm shift, the gospel, the Gentiles, they didn't have to become Jew, the Holy Spirit being poured out, like this Gentile Pentecost, it's radical, which also leads to another idea as to why they were so blown away by the event itself. And that is the fact that maybe these men are second generation Christians. So they've heard about Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out originally on the 124 gathered in Jerusalem. It's been a decade that they had only heard of this kind of an occurrence and that they were just now seeing it for the first time. 
side observation, but something that I feel like needs to be stated. Do you, do you know what's not missing in this church service led by Peter? Something that, that most uh, fundamental Christians, most of us Southerners, kind of find to be traditional or customary. You have Peter laying out a sermon to a group of unbelievers. This group of unbelievers obviously are saved and they're filled with the Spirit, but know what Peter didn't do? He didn't give an altar call. Do you know that, that he, didn't, he didn't like pause? Every head bow and every eye close. And if you would like a, Jesus made a profession for you. Now it's time for you to make a profession for him. We're going to ask you to stand up, come down. Up. Like, there was none of that. Not to say that that's bad in and of itself, but there wasn't like a magic bean prayer, was there? Like if you don't recite this prayer exactly the way that it needs to be recited, then well, Oh, I don't know if you'll ever really enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, no, what do we find here? We find that salvation, salvation occurred as a result of a quiet belief of faith in the heart. That's one of, one of the reasons why we don't often give altar calls here at Calvary 316, because we don't want to put pressure. Like, that, like that's a matter between you and God. You making a decision in faith to believe, to accept something that he's given you, to make a, a determination that you're going to follow him for all of your days, that's something between you and him. We give the word, the spirit does a work. That's not our job. And I think, I think that there are times when you sitting there, something stirs, something changes. Something that started in the brain moves to the heart and it unlocks something of life. That it's a quiet moment. Now, I would encourage you that in those instances, to tell someone. Like you should tell someone. That's an important thing. To profess Christ, to not be a closet believer. But I love the fact that salvation occurred as a result of a quiet belief of their heart. And then Peter answered, he says, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have note that they're saved, they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit and baptism hasn't happened yet. Just another example, by the way, uh, against the idea of baptismal regeneration. And he commanded that they be baptized in the name of the Lord, which is unique because this is the only instance that I can find where an apostle commands someone to be baptized. It's often like, hey, would you like to be baptized? Or the person's like, hey, I'd like to be baptized. But Peter's like, he understands such the gravity of the moment that these Gentiles are now Christians, that he's like, there's water. We gotta go do this. And I can see the, these, these other guys are like, well, I don't really know, Peter. You know, it's kind of the time. And he's like, no, we're doing this. It's going down. Let's go. Get your bathing suits. We're diving in, right? I mean, it's this moment. And we're told that they asked that they stay with them a few days. Chapter 11, now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea, they heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, they contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men, the Gentiles, and ate with them? After spending a few days with Cornelius in this newly formed church in Caesarea, Peter these six guys who have accompanied him from Joppa, they head to Jerusalem to give an account of what's just occurred. But it's apparent that word spread faster than their feet, which leads us to the first key to a paradigm shift. 
corporately or personally. It's the reality that when God does something in your life, when there's a shift that you're willing to be accountable and transparent with people that you trust who will challenge and discuss the legitimacy of your claim. You know, I don't find any fault in what takes place here in Acts chapter 11. What's happened here is so big, so radical, so revolutionary that it is their obligation to challenge Peter, to get to the bottom of it, to find out what's occurring. And Peter is willing to do this, isn't he? God does something, breaks from the norm, and Peter's like, I gotta go to guys I trust, I gotta bounce this off, I gotta be accountable, transparent, open. With people I know will call me on the carpet, will really challenge me, are not just yes men in my life. And he does this. Because we're told upon arrival, those of the circumcision, which are Jews, they contend with Peter. This word contend, it means to strive with dispute. It was a heated debate. And what was their issue? That Peter had kept company and eaten with the Gentiles. Interesting, their problem is not with the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentiles, but that Peter had eaten and hung out with them. And so he begins by recounting the events of chapter 10. Verse four, so Peter explained it to them from the beginning. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision. An object descends like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. It came to me. When I observed it intently, I considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild bees, creeping things, birds of the air, some clean, some unclean. I heard a voice. It said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. You know how that rolls with me. Jesus working three times. It was drawn up back into heaven. And at that moment, three men stood at the house where I was staying, being sent from Caesarea. So the Spirit told me that I was to go with them and doubt nothing. Moreover, I took six guys with me. We entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel. That it said, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose name is Peter. He'll tell you the words that you and your household need to be saved. So I began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. It happened just like it was with us at the beginning. And now Peter, after recounting what we already know, kind of begins to provide a justification for his actions. Verse 16, then I remembered the word of the Lord. So he's saying as, as the Holy Spirit is being poured out, like I'm working my way through it, but at this moment, I remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said, John indeed, indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, or better translated, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? David Guzik has said it well when he remarked that a work of God must always be in line with the word of God. And this is what Peter does. This is everything that happened, but now let me balance it with God's word. He uses scripture as his plumb line, which leads us to the second key, to a paradigm shift. Not only must you be willing to take it to people to hold you accountable, to be transparent, to be open with, but also your claim must be substantiated by truth. It's one of the problems that I see in this paradigm shift happening within Christianity today. It's actually setting truth aside and trying to find a new norm. I think that's a problem. 
If God doesn't work in your life and you really want to know, is this real or I'm being ripped off? Take it to God's word. The Holy Spirit will never do something that's contrary to what God has already revealed here. Peter says, I remember the word of the Lord. And Mark 1 verse 8, Jesus said that while John indeed baptized with water, Jesus said that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here's Peter's logic. God's approval of us would be demonstrated through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles were baptized with the Holy Spirit just like we were. Therefore, God has to be equally as approving of the Gentiles as he is of us Jews. It's pretty flawless, actually. Simple, to the point. He says, if therefore God gave them the same gift that, that, that was given to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism of the Holy Spirit, then who was I that I could withstand God? It's as though Peter's saying, guys, like, what do you want me to do? Like, what was I supposed to do? I'm there. God had accepted them. What was I supposed to do? Reject them? Trump God? I had to roll with it. Verse 18, and, and when they heard these things, what happened? They became silent. And they glorify God, saying, Then God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance to life. Clearly, Peter's story, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, his scriptural justification, it resonated within a contentious crowd. Luke says they became silent or held their peace. And note, it wasn't as though these men who were contentious with Peter held their tongue, but still like stewed inwardly. No, we're told they glorified God. You know, crossing lines of, 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 of such a magnitude, a racial division by Peter, it took guts. But then universally accepting this work by Jewish brethren, it's also amazing. You know, I like the fact that how were, no, this is a church, even leadership within the church. How did they settle their contention? He said this, well, she said that. Well, I think this, and I think, no. They took it back to the word of God. They let God's word settle division. How sad it is when the church doesn't implement this model, how much disunity occurs as a result. If we can't go back to the word of God to settle disputes, then what can we go back to? Which leads us to the third key, to a paradigm shift. The evidence of your claim should persuade others. Like there should be an, an agreement that it should resonate. And why were they glad? We're told they were glad because God had granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. You know, the final key to a paradigm shift is that the shift has to make a positive impact. It's what makes the bottled water thing such a scam. It claims to, but it doesn't. It actually takes money out of your pocket. See, that's the problem. What happened here? Not only is Peter willing to take it to friends, hold him accountable, to confirm it, checking it with God's word. But they were glad because the Gentiles could receive repentance of life, repentance of life. It's been correctly said that God loves you just the way that you are. It's true, right? It's an amazing aspect of God's grace that we don't have to clean up ourselves before we come to the cross. However, God wants us to come to him with a sincere desire that he make us into something better. That's what repentance to life is all about. I come to God, I don't have to clean myself up. I come to God, it's not what I do, it's all about him. But there has to be a desire that I'm tired of being who I am. He'll accept me, but he wants to change me. And that's why I'm here. 
to be transformed, to be changed, to be made into something better than I currently am. And then we're told that God has also granted. Now, it's true that the desire to repent, it doesn't naturally flow from the wellspring of our fallen human nature. As a matter of fact, the Bible presents repentance as being a gift of God. Like, I hope you understand, God has to do a work in your heart to create or spawn the desire to repent concerning sin. So what does this mean? (laughs) It means that if you're being stirred in this moment to repent over sin, that you should do it because it's God's work right now in your heart, but that might not happen tomorrow. God granted the opportunity to repent and they jumped for the opportunity. They jumped for the chance. If you don't feel the need to repent today, do it. If you do feel the need to repent today, do it today. Do it now, for you might not want to do it tomorrow. Understand, in conclusion, that there is no greater paradigm shift that occurs when a person on the road to destruction stops, repents, or about faces, and begins to follow Jesus. It's what happened here in the house of Cornelius. Something changed. There was a shift of seismic proportions that would, as a result, create a ripple that would affect the entire world for every generation to follow. So, Father, Lord, we ask that you take these things, that you work them into our heart, In Jesus' name.